a microphone and uh, can of course have a, a technical, let's say, definition, but I much rather um, prefer the more abstract one, which says a microphone and is really concerned with the front end representation of a business subdomain. Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and today we are very fortunate to have Florian Rappel, otherwise known as Flo, with us today. Uh, Flo is a solutions architect at Snap Yacht. And more importantly, what we're going to be talking about today, he's the creator of Pyrel, which is a very interesting framework for creating. I mean, how is it stated on, on the mission statement? It's, it's uh, portal applications at a large scale. So welcome to the podcast, Flo. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to get into like some of your background and in, in this interesting framework. There's been a lot of interesting um, or different, I'll say, verbiage that's thrown around when I'm reading the Pyral docs and looking at some of the talks that exist on YouTube. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. So where, what background are you coming from? Server side world, the front end world? Yeah, mostly server-side world, actually. Uh, <clears throat> the last, uh, let's say, four to five years, more and more front-end work. I mean, it's not that I never did front-end work, right? Always. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, the old Apple saying, if you uh, love hardware, you also need to do the software or vice versa, right? It can be said like that. And of course, if you like web applications, you can say the same. So if you really love the back-end, you also should care about your front-end and vice versa, right? So everyone who loves front-end should also care about the back-end side. And so I was never, let's say, completely out of the front-end way, but for many years, I mean, I considered myself more back-end guy. Um, though, of course, my whole, let's say, background story starts a little bit earlier, and uh, I guess you would be surprised. Actually, I haven't majored in <laughs> computer science or anything like that. I actually uh, did a, a PhD in, in particle physics, so <laughs> something not related to software, at least directly, even though I would always argue that uh, physics and the internet, that's something that, that fits together <laughs> if you look at the history of the, of the World Wide Web, at least, right? It's, that's, that's interesting because I know more people that go into physics, get their master's, their PhD, and then they end up in the tech field. It, you know, I feel like, because if you do that sort of progression, your brain is trained to think like a computer scientist. You're trained to think discreetly and precisely, so. Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of problem-solving skills that are built up in, in studying physics and uh, that really goes to, you know, how to dissect a problem and how to really think about it, uh, let's say, in a nutshell and then and, and try to come up with solutions, uh, feasible solutions, right? Uh, also, yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, even though it's theoretical particle physics, I mean, the solutions uh, still need to be somewhat practical, right? So you need to be able to conduct them either on paper or, you know, in engineering perspectives. And so I think it's um, from, let's say, foundational uh, perspective, a quite good uh, field to study if you want to crack uh, today's problems in, in computer science or, you know, just standard problems that arise when you develop something. Really quick side note, are you following or excited about the recent uh, energy production, like advancements that have come out for the fusion? Is that like something you, you follow and... There is uh, the old joke, right, that uh, every, let's say, uh, couple of years, every decade, uh, there is uh, the question, when will we have fusion? And it's always 50 years away. 
So uh, it's an old joke. Um, I don't know if we if we're getting closer. There are always these success stories, but at the end of the day, what what really um, is meaningful is are there already reactors out there that you know are not just for experimental purposes, but really built to you know give a city power or uh, at least uh, a smaller village. And at this point in time, right, all we have is experimental success here and there, or the ITER was built in quite a large facility. Um, and uh, yeah, let's see, uh, it's all good success stories, but so far nothing has come out where you say this is it. On the other side, of course, we also have uh, radioactivity. It was nuclear reactors coming up uh, again, um, sponsored by Bill Gates, uh, for instance. But also here, I haven't heard so much in the last four to five years. So, uh, I mean, in general, we have an energy problem. Uh, and uh, I hope that one of these solutions comes soon, because otherwise it will not look so bright in 15 to 20 years from now. And we need solutions. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's just an in, uh, enticing conversation to talk about because there's some private sector guys out there that are saying they're going to have a small village powered in five years, which is, I'm just like, I don't know how that's possible, but power to you guys. <laughs> um, but anyway, bring bring it back to the, the, the reason why we're here today. Um, so you're coming from a back-end server world, but yeah, everything's important, of course. You got to care about the whole stack because in, in the end, the whole stack is what the end product's being delivered to the user. Um and so you created Pyro. It was that sort of like, did you see a need for this framework or you probably did? And what was that need in this holistic picture of create of delivering product? Yeah. Uh, like, um, six years ago, I was working on a, on a platform for, for smart home products. And, uh, that, that was already, let's say living, uh, right. So it had a lot of, of, of users and uh, they were working on the next version of their, of their front end of the whole UI. Um, of course picked, uh, nice native applications and they also wanted to have a, a web application out there. And the problem that they had was quite simple, right? So uh, you now have this, this uh, smart home platform, but there are all these kind of different devices that are there. And uh, even though some of them may look, uh, let's say, for a standard user, quite similar, uh, light switch, for instance, is quite similar to a light switch that operates, for instance, a Philips Hue. Uh, these things are on the other than Eve are quite different. For instance, a Philips Hue, you may have different colors, right? And, uh, so in your UI that you want to present for the, for the user, these capabilities, these extra capabilities also need to be modeled somehow. Now, if you, <laughs> Take all the different device types that this platform supported, right? Quite many. Um, sure, you can bring them all together in some monolith and you will be happy for, let's say, a week. But then new, a new device type comes out or an, of an existing device type, um, something just changes. There is a new capability or an update that, you know, uh, needs to have also or need, needs to be reflected on the back end. And that also needs to be reflected somewhat on the front end. And therefore, this front end application would ever be changing, which is, yeah, just deadly because uh, you spend a lot of time maintaining that. So what we did was kind of a plugin system and every kind of um, 
yeah, uh, device type was then modeled as a plugin and yeah, was then just consumed by this uh, application. Um, not only did it make the application much smaller because it only had to take care of, you know, how screens are rendered, etc., and not of the different device types. Also, the maintenance was much simpler because you could give now these plugins to different teams. So the team that made already, let's say, the backend integration of, let's bring up Philips Hue again, was also then responsible of just updating the, the front-end part of it, right? Um, and that was quite powerful because that enabled just onboarding new device types without ever touching the application, uh, updating device types just on the fly. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we composed it together like that. That was quite successful. And uh, after that, I had two or three other projects uh, some of them were still in, let's say, in some uh, IoT field, but others uh, more uh, portal-focused. And for some reason, always, uh, when I look back, it was some kind of plugin architecture that was, in the end, the solution for the requirements that we that we had. Um, so in the smart home platform, it was quite, quite simple, but uh, spinning a little bit forward to some kind of a portal application um, that we did, uh, they also... And what do you mean by portal? Good question. So a portal in this case was like a customer portal. So that was a single point right. where a standard user of this company would go in to, for instance, create a service ticket, see all the machines that they bought, um, interacted with the company in a digital way, right? It was your one-stop uh, digital service portal, so to speak. And portal in that sense that it offered now all these different services that were yeah, scattered in the, in the company, right? They were... Lots of different uh, owners of uh, all the functionality, so there was not a single entity. I mean, sure, there was the company, but underneath, right, quite some umbrella. Uh, uh, and uh, again, uh, the solution was to have this as a kind of a shell here on the the web application, and let every team then, you know, give. Um, well, their own window to that and uh, uh, enhance the application with whatever they want to offer. And of course, make that consistent so that the same team that offers now the menu link for their functionality, of course, presents the content. Uh, and uh, the big win here was that uh, everything could be feature flagged at the end of the day. So um, this company operated in many different industries. And if you have been custom of one industry, you've got a set of, let's say, functionality that fits to your or industry, but uh, a user of, with a different background would get different functionality. Maybe some functionality would be the same, I don't know, like a generic feedback uh, functionality. But for instance, one industry is really software driven, so they would have, I don't know, software downloads as a section, whereas another industry, they were really, let's say, machine driven, and so you had like a machine overview uh, on, in, in the portal. Um, uh, of that industry, right? Um, but it was still the same application. It was just composed of different pieces. Uh, and so, again, uh, even though in the beginning when I started the project, it looked very different than, the, for instance, the smart home one, at the end of the day, what was underneath was essentially this the same architecture, right? So uh, you could just compose together something dynamically and teams could just contribute and around that time, I think it was 2017 or start of, of 18, that term micro frontend somewhat be became popular for such patterns where you compose frontends together. 
Um, and when I joined Smartyard, the, the company that I'm currently a solution architect in, uh, we had an initial meeting. Uh, what should we do? Uh, what clients, uh, well, should I consult? And I said, what we definitely need to do is to bring this kind of architecture that I now implemented uh, three or four times already and every time a little bit different, but, you know, improved from my point of view to make it generic and make it an open source solution. And that's how Pyro came, came to be. So it was actually the solution that we used already in a couple of projects that we've seen uh, makes developers fast, makes teams go really fast, bring features to, to market in, in basically no time, remain consistent and, well, practically make uh, check boxes or uh, check all the boxes essentially um, what microphones uh, are supposed to do, right? What advantages you, you expect from them, Um Without, of course, much of the trouble, because most of the trouble in microfrontends comes from the fact that, you know, you need to build everything from the ground up, all the dev tooling, everything. How do the things come together? Essentially deriving a bulletproof architecture. And I thought, well, since I did that now a couple of times and I made my mistakes, of course, and I refined them over time. Now that's a good time to bring something out where the con uh, community now can, can benefit from. Right. And that was how Pyro was born. And since then, we as, as a company, Smartyard, uh, are supporting Pyrel and, yeah, of course, are investing in Pyrel um, too, right? Enjoying the podcast? Consider hitting that follow button for more great episodes. So it, it sounds like it's application building framework as, long, as well as like a process. It's like a C, there's some CICD flavors built into like what you come out with about how do we organize the process of development and the maintenance and the deploying of these pieces? One word you mentioned was a micro front end. Like, what is that? How do we define a micro front end? A micro front end uh, can, of course, have a, a technical, let's say, definition, but I much rather um, prefer the more abstract one, which says a micro front end is really concerned with the front end representation of a business subdomain, um, which means you look at your whole application and you try to identify a smaller part of it where you say this could be handled, for instance, by a single team, or this makes sense maybe from a technical point of view, because I don't know, it changes much more often. The business requirements on this thing maybe are still in flux or that they really change regularly, um, that this is handled by, by, let's say, separately, that it can be deployed independently at the end of the day. So what you want to achieve with a micro front end is independence, essentially, that you don't have to create everything, let's say, like a monolith. A big thing already, your full application consisting of your whole um, business logic, but you just cut out uh, a subdomain of it, a part of it, and that you just make in isolation, essentially. And then you sh can ship it, you can update it, and it will always uh, be composed together to the big part uh, in, in your whole application, right? Um, but your concern is only now creating this one smaller part and you do that in isolation essentially that's why it's usually called micro it doesn't need to be micro from let's say a technical point of view um, even though it's good if it is <laughs> uh, but micro in terms of it is really focused on one aspect of your whole business domain right okay i i catch your drip that sounds like a great definition um the one subdomain or like one business objective really stuck with me so thank you for that um, right. So what do you say to the folks who come and maybe they're like, well, this, this is all great, but componenterizing or like sectorizing 
piece of functionality. That's literally what React is. It's like all about modular, modular um, development and putting in your components. You know, of course, yeah, we're still in one framework. But what what are the benefits you would try to, or problems that you run into following those paradigms that you saw the pyro that you'd want to communicate? So with React, uh, I mean, React is great. We, we, For instance, Pyral is using React as the primary framework. I say primary because, I mean, you may still be wanting or needing <laughs> to go to other frameworks, at least for, for subparts, that's fine. Um, but let's say to define your application from a layout perspective, et cetera, we also use React. So uh, React gives you a great component model. Um, and components are still, of course, important because, uh, I mean, components are the building blocks that you reuse, of course. Uh, but they are generic. They're not domain-bound. Think of a button, for instance, right? I mean, a button, you can define the label. You can define what it does on click, but that's it, right? There is no nothing preset on that one button. Now, if that would be now a component from the micro front end, that wouldn't be the generic button. It would be a button that already triggers something. I don't know, goes to your back end and uh, already puts uh, the, the item into a shopping cart or something, right? So that thing would have domain knowledge. It would already be bound, for instance, to your backend. It would already have all that logic behind it. Um, so if you import a button, let's say from a micro front end, it wouldn't just be a button because then it wouldn't be a microphone, but a component library. But if you import it, it would be a button with functionality already. So uh, again, it's that domain focus that must be there. And that's important because quite often what micro front ends bring or should bring is really this domain consistency. Now, for instance, you I mentioned the the portal beforehand, and you of course, if you had a page in the portal, that's good, but how do you reach that page? So every microphone that also brings your page needs to give you, for instance, the link to the page. If it doesn't, then you have a problem because now, for instance, some other microphone would need to know that link but that link is already domain knowledge, right? So if you, if now another microphone that knows that link, that would be quite deadly because how can you now change that link? Two microphones would need to align on that. And so, of course, in order to stay consistent, that link also needs to come from the microphone that gives you the content for that link. Uh, and then it stays always consistent because now that microphone can just change the link and yeah, it's changed. It's fine. It's the same microphone that registers it. It's good, right? And it know it owns that link. It owns that knowledge. Um, so this is what it is all about. Um, now, even if you have, let's say, a React's component model and you create a domain-specific component in React, how do you update it in a large application? So this is where, where Pyrel now comes in, right? It solves this. It gives you the ability now to publish these independent pieces. Um, and by default, it does that we are a backend component. This is where we touch the backend part again. <laughs> uh, and we call that a feed service. Uh, it's not required for Pyro, but of course, since, you know, you will need it at some point. Uh, otherwise, I mean, you will need to somewhat work around it. You could always embed your microphones directly in your application, but what's the point of that, right? I mean, then it's just like a monolith again. <laughs> uh, so you can do that at for instance, a build step if you want to. Or what you could, of course, also do is you have some JSON uh, fragment somewhere and you just update that. 
But then you also need to solve how do you update the JSON fragment when you push a new micro front end, et cetera. So that feed service takes away all of that for you. You can just push to it, a new micro front end, an existing micro front end, you name it. And the feed service will make sure that uh, when you connect your, your application to it, it just delivers these micro front ends that are currently there, enabled, and in the latest version, at least the latest selected version, um, and that it just works. It also has things like feature flags, et cetera, in there. So you can feature flags, uh, feature flag micro frontends can say, okay, in this region, we are not deploying that micro frontend or this micro frontend we want to A-B test, uh, or this micro frontend, oh, there was a bug we need to roll back. And you can do all of these things. So I think this backend component is what makes the micro frontends really great because this brings now this dynamic part to well, <laughs> composing the application just together on the fly, uh, which in my opinion is the big benefit, uh, technically, of course, and potentially even from business perspective, because quite often businesses are saying, okay, in some region, we need to have this. In another region, we need to have that. Or think about the example with the portal application. Okay, for users of that industry, we want to have that kind of functionality. And for the other industry, uh, a different one. And you can just do that very, very easily and without writing any ifs and, and elses, et cetera, in your code. So everything is already there on the on the module level, which is great because it can even be operated, you know, by someone without code knowledge, goes in there and just sets a different feature flag. Um, that uh, at least was, for instance, the portal project, a big win. Product owners just then selecting the target regions, and everything from there on was was quite good. It's a, that's almost like a infrastructure as code sort of thing coming from a Terraform point of view. You can put which users you want in which scopes and which organizations. And that that's a really nice thing to give to like your DevOps team or a product owner. Yeah, it made things just a lot easier. And I mean, you can sync, of course, then for instance, some, let's say, authorization requirements that you know, for instance, you know already what uh, backend services your, your microphone communicates to. The backend service already exposes, for instance, the uh, the required scopes for that. And then you can just match that also in the feed service, for instance, and you just deliver the, the micro frontends that, you know, could also be then used by the end user, which is just great because no longer do you need to <laughs> have in your code some guards that, oh, don't show that button if, you know, that that uh, that scope isn't there uh, and then that goes uh, uh, yeah out of alignment for some reason that will always be aligned and you will never then hit some 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 error codes in your front end that says oh backend just told me you cannot do that <laughs> um, because yeah it's just by default always in sync and uh, without someone worrying um, during development right I mean that that just is automatically there and so in my opinion that gives development a great boost. And it makes just things so much easier. Um, yeah. But it all, of course, comes at the cost of having the right architecture in the beginning and having something to sustain that. And again, that I think is where Pyrel can come in very, very handy. Um, at least for someone who, uh, who already saw that a couple of times, uh, living up to that story. And so it was always quite good to see. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. 
In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. Would you would you compare the potential of Pyrel and like the type of things people are building with Pyrel to like a dash a very like in-depth dashboard builder where the widgets within the dashboard are functionality or like you know, I've also used portals where it's like, you know, uh, Citrix and it's, you know, you log in and it's like a bunch of awful little widgets that you can click on. And they boot up VMs. And because when you go to the Pyro website, there's a lot of very enticing um, dashboard looking demos and the modularity really looks great. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in the, if you choose Pyro, so we have Pyro is a little bit block layered, right? So you can, for instance, go with Pyro Core. That's what we recommend for every, let's say, production application, um, because these kind of applications, what they usually want is really full control, what, what you, what they use and, and, uh, yeah, how it looks like, what version of React, I don't know, is used. But if you just want to get started, what you usually get is Pyro, um, a library called Pyro that just selects a version of React for you and all that makes it really easy to get started. And in Pyro, there's a, a plugin already, uh, included that's called Pyro dashboard. And, uh, that's exactly what you, what you said. You get with this Pyro dashboard already an API for your micro front ends that, that they can just register then tiles on, on a dashboard. Um, uh, of course, one of the reasons is, it's very easy to grasp already what microfrontends can give you because that's a page where every microfrontend usually wants a share in. So you get really on one page already very visible, uh, very striking, all the different, or let's say a window into all the offerings of the different microfrontends, right? Which is great. Uh, and on the other hand, it's something that, uh, yeah, at least these portal applications quite often use or want, right? So you, you want, you need to start somewhere. So what's your starting page? And quite often that's a dashboard or um, yeah, something very similar to it. Uh, yeah, we've seen also applications that don't start with a dashboard and that that's also fine. But yeah, dashboard pages are definitely among the most popular ones, thinking at least of these portal applications. And so, yeah, we wanted to make that as, as easy as possible. You can make that therefore quite simple uh, and with, with Pyro because, uh, yeah, we just, as mentioned, have this plugin. Plugins, all what they do is they just enhance the so-called pilot API. So that's an API that your micro frontends can use to bring their stuff to the full application, right? Um, so they can register pages, for instance, or very generically so-called extension components. So that, that is actually what makes Pyrel very useful. But in this case, they also get an API to register tile. Uh, these tiles, they could have been solved also with extension components. So there is no need actually for the plugin, but the plugin always makes that you know, uh, strongly typed in that sense that you get auto-completion. You can see already, oh, I can register tile here. And oh, by the way, I got a second option to define, for instance, the initial size of that tile, whatever that is. I mean, design is always left to the to the end user in Pyro. We never make a, a, a design for you. Sure, of course, our <laughs> templates, they have some design, but it's all open, right? So there's just an, a, a SAS file, for instance, included. So you can just edit it in there. So it's never hidden or something. Um, it really leaves it then up to the end user to apply some some styling uh, in, in styling terms it's never opinionated 
Um, but anyway, um, yeah, and uh, therefore, sure, dashboards are one of the things. You don't need to use them. I would always say um, you potentially want to use them, but it fully, of course, depends on the on the use case. Um, so we've seen use cases that just don't require a dashboard. Yeah, the dashboard is cool too because it's like a simpler, it's palatable for like coming into it. Like I can look at a dashboard and say, oh, I can see this functionality and that functionality versus like, it, I don't know. It's another phenotype would be more difficult to talk about what Pyro can offer, I feel like. So, um, you know, going off of the dashboards, I would assume some of the more entry level applications that people would create are from dashboards. So, uh, you know, we could talk about all the things Pyro can do and the amazing apps people make out of it, but I always like to hear about the simplest use cases and like the stupid things people make because it kind of makes you think like, oh, wow, like somebody just used it for that. Oh, I could use it for this. Are there any examples that you've seen in the community of people making something silly or very simple that you're like, wow, that was a good use of our technology, even though it was small? Oh, yeah, I mean, sh uh, I wouldn't call it simple, but at least that's uh, what I would call the most Presumably, most successful uh, demo or example that we have is actually a Netflix clone. Uh, of course, you know it isn't the full Netflix from the from the backend perspective, but what you get there, and that I mean, we can also call maybe a dashboard, but it is specifically not a dashboard. Is this overview of the of the movies, right? So if you're like in Netflix, your categories there, and then just you know a selection of of movies in the category. Um, and that page, for instance, it doesn't use dashboard. Um, and sure, because not every movie is a different micro front end. I mean, this is just data at the end, right? But uh, what was done there is it still consists, I think, of five or six micro front ends, and they still come together in some places, but not how, let's say, you potentially would, would see them because, again, micro front ends are domain driven, so they're not technically driven shouldn't be. Um, so they come together, for instance, in the menu uh, above, because there you get, I don't know, four or five menu points, and they already come from, I, I, I think, at least uh, three or four of uh, micro frontends. So there you already see something on the page that comes from the different micro frontends. And the second part is that, um, for instance, there's a microphone responsible for showing these previews of the of the movies, right? Um, so the, the thumbnail, and uh, if you would hover over it, it would also start playing, um, and they offer then a slot in in their in their uh, tree. And so, what another microphone and like for instance favorites can do, they can project in that slot a known component, like for instance a heart, where you can say, "Oh, I like that. That's a button now. If I press it, that's added to my favorites." And so that already shows then the power because if I just turn off the favorites, for instance, the menu. Uh, item in the, in the menu bar just disappears with favorites, right? Because no favorites page anymore means no link to it. But also the heart just disappeared, right? So it really consistently goes away. Um, and if I enable it again, it just shows up at wherever, you know, <laughs> it makes sense design wise. Uh, and you got the functionality again. And that already shows what it is about, right? So you split your domain in this case. You said, okay, it makes sense. Favorites is a different team. They, they do their own thing. And uh, then it all comes together for the end user invisibly, right? I mean, the end user would just say, that's Netflix. Uh, no idea that the, there is Pyro behind. Um, and that's a little bit the, the, the idea, right? So this is a technology that goes away. I mean, what 
all good technologies in some sense go away because it's all about the value delivered uh, for the end user. And that just end user just sees, oh, it's a lot of movies. That's that's the one I know. That's that's Netflix, and uh, that's great. Um, so in terms of let's say stupid examples, I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's not a good not a good way to start out. Like calling out some of your awesome open source users and contributors as hey, you have the best stupid example. No, I don't think we have any actually. I mean, um, because with this technology specifically, what people are usually creating is they're not using that for fun, right? It's uh, it's something that will only be used in, in larger contexts, uh, which means it, it if I just do a weekend project, uh, it will be the last thing that I care about to say, oh, now I do the domain decomposition and I just create, I don't know, seven micro front ends just for the fun of it. No one will do that, right? Uh, and so it's it's uh, it's really all about and therefore about enterprise users, which is good and bad. The good thing is uh, we have therefore quite some nice users, um, always great to be in touch with them and their projects, they're really long lasting and, and quite reliable. And so uh, that that's great. But on the other side, of course, enterprise users are not known to be, let's say, going out all the time and, and just writing blog posts and, and, and being on Twitter, et cetera. So these guys, they want to have the job done nine to five. And um, yeah, that's how they use it. Um, right, so there are no, let's say, stupid examples from that size. The, the stupid examples will come from me, right, doing just some some parallel examples. And of course, we did some where you wouldn't wouldn't use it directly for, for microphone. And so we did, for instance, a game studio uh, where then different kind of games in form of microphone are loaded in. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a stupid example, but uh, at least it's not, you know, a productive one from the perspective of an enterprise user. <laughs> not a, that's a good way to say it. Not a productive example. I like that. that I'm going to use that moving forward. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you're saying this is for enterprise customers, but your example of the favorites was really cool. Like that's... I mean, I can turn off this feature from my application and everything's going to render correctly. It's like nothing of the core functionality is going to be lost. And maybe like there's a piece from there that I'm using somewhere else, but you know, you can choose to use that piece or not. Would you say that this is a way that people should think about developing from the ground up? Or are you like, no, this is for enterprise customers? The answer would be it depends. In generally, I would say yes. But of course, I mean... Not every code needs to be written in a way that you say, oh, this this must be, I don't know, in, in some kind of a museum in a hundred years, right? So some code is just, I need to get the job done. I need to have it fast. So uh, yeah, let's just tie things together. <laughs> let's, let's not follow best practices. And let's not write tests for it. Let's just get it done, right? And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you write, let's say, code where you say, this is where my infrastructure is based on, or this is something, you know, I care a lot about. This is where we make the money. This is uh, our, our business. Uh, yes, I think it should be done like that. Um, in some sense also, right, so it's, it's, a, it's a question that also comes um, very often to me is, when should I write a microphone? And, uh, and uh, what I can always say is, well, I mean, what you can always do is you can start in your application shell with the feature too. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, if anyway, the application shell, I don't know, needs to support that feature in some way. 
It just would make it easy to get started. And then uh, you can still evaluate if you just leave it there or if you put it in a micro front end. Um, I give you an example uh, in that one portal application I talked earlier about, uh, we had this uh, shared functionality of a feedback. Um, so it was just, you know, a little button, you click on it, the model dialogue comes up and then a couple of questions in there and then you can give some, or write some feedback and just send it. And we integrated that in the applications shell, so in that uh, monolithic layer underneath. Um, and it was just happy there for a couple of months. And then we got some new requirements in there. Oh, can you put in now a couple more questions if the user gives it less than, I don't know, three stars, do that, etc. And I said, okay, that's now a good point in time. Let's put that in its own micro front end because I have a feeling that will not be the last time that they come with, with requirements for that and with changes. And luckily I was right there because uh, we just implemented their changes and maybe a week has passed. Then they come up with some new requirements that say, oh, yeah, well, it's good, but now we need to have something. If it's above seven stars, can you also do something here? And then two weeks later, oh, we also need a consent for that. Can you, and so on. It, it continued. And then, I don't know, every week or so there was a change in wording or a change in a little bit the logic, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was really great to have it then in the microphone because we could just, you know, independently deploy that, test that, and uh, really also... Um, steer that and we were never worried about the whole application again which was of course much more tests uh, running the whole smoke test suite etc so deployments there took just longer and it was always just annoying to to release a new version just because something in this little functionality changed and that's what i think would make it really good if you would think in terms of these modules um and again you don't need to cut them out right away, but at least with something like Pyro, it makes it possible to cut it out and put it in its own place and therefore also bury it may maybe in the future, right? If there is a new successor for, for instance, this feedback thing, you just need to disable the old one, you create a new one, it's there. And that's really good because no one now needs to throw away the code explicitly. Uh, I mean, the module is still there, it's just disabled now in that feed service, and that's fine. Um, so no worries somewhere, oh, I now need to restore that. Uh, do we still have the repository? Uh, no need to, to do anything there, um, just works. And therefore I think, yes, uh, in general, thinking in terms of these modules and uh, about your functionality, I think is, is a good good way to think about applications. At least, you know, once they reach a certain size uh, or a certain level of importance, then always think about composition, think about how you can deploy individual parts and how just to speed that up. At the end of the day, I mean, it just will, I think, have great benefit on, on multiple areas. It will speed up development of the smaller ones. It will speed up build times. It will therefore, of course, lead to uh, more satisfied users because you can, you know, when they have a request, much uh, faster react to it. And I think it's all about this, this reaction time at the end of the day. I, I want to ask this question because it's a whole, it's another like abstraction layer for your brain to learn and to like, you know, understand how to walk with, uh, to, you know, to really abstract correctly. Cause you can just equally abstract wrong. You could draw the wrong circles and lines around your functional pieces and dig yourself into a hole. So it's something that requires practice. And it's a question of like, when do you start to deem that practice necessary? Um, it's, but I guess, hey, go check it out, have fun with it, see if you want to be that guy one weekend that will subdomain your components for no reason. And <laughs> 
Yeah, why not? I mean, you need to start somewhere, as you said. I mean, also for me, uh, so when we introduced this, um, I mean, Pyro had it from the ground up, but that pattern of these extension slots, right? So this is, is what makes it really dynamic. Extension slots are maybe a little bit difficult to describe without, you know, seeing it live, but you can think about it like events, but just for UI. Uh, and now you say, but in the UI, I can emit events, but these events are, you know, just data flowing around. But really, this is rendering of components, so to speak. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, a web component, for instance. You can have a web component that gives you already a slot because you can just name anything. You can, in your document object model, in your HTML, write my dash awesome minus component and close that. And now you got some, what I would call a slot there. And when you now register a component with exactly that name, my awesome component in this case, then it will show up at this point. Now that's great. But it has, of course, some limitations. How do you now know that nothing was registered uh, reactively, right? How do you know if that fails? What if, let's say, multiple things want to show up in that slot? You can't do that with web components. So it can only be the first step. Now, Pyrel has this thing, and it has, of course, all of these questions figured out. So you, you can define how they render, uh, what is a fallback, for instance, um, how many can render in there. You can do all of that. Uh, and that is quite powerful because there is now this, like with events, this contract between, you know, I got this slot here. I maybe give some data in and I, I got something for this slot. I can fill it. I can render at this position something with given some data maybe. Uh, and it's like, you know, an event, uh, there's this button and it emits a click event. It will put in, I don't know, was it a mouse? What was the position of the mouse? Was it left or, or right uh, button of the mouse? Things like that. And then you say, oh, now I, I got something. I got a handler for this event. And that's the same now on the UI level. Now I got something on this slot, on this position on, on the screen to show. And um, when we started with this pattern, it was quite often... Uh, you you <laughs> recognize yourself going back to events again. You're like, ah, now I need to use data. So uh, how do I do that? I need to em emit an event. But then wait a minute. We now have now this slot. What if the owner of that slot, who, by the way, is the owner of the data, just, you know, puts in the data and I just can have a component. I don't need to, you know, have an event now always listening to whenever data changes because I can just have my component. It would just get now that data from the respectful owner of that data. Uh, and that's quite powerful. But as you said, you need first to train your brain for that because you've never used a pattern like that. You you not used to mechanism like that. And that's uh, the, the learning curve that Pyrel has, in my opinion. It's not that Pyrel is per se complicated, but it's really that these new kind of ways that you can now use your application that you can compose it. That's the new thing. And that, of course, was new to me as well. <laughs> it's new for everyone because we're not used to such patterns, uh, these extension components, extension slots, components uh, working together. We always are just used to, oh, we got a shared data container. Oh, we got events. That's it. We were not used to. Oh, there's maybe something that in most cases makes more sense for UI because we are in UI. Our end goal is always to show something, right? And uh, sometimes, sure, an event is great, I don't know, we also emit lockout events or something because yeah, there may not be something that is interest of shown there, but still most of the time what you really want for and what will solve your problem, make it much simpler in your code too, is using these extension components, for instance. But that requires training and thinking about it. 
yeah, and, and practicing flexing those muscles. I, it's almost like you, you know, we're, you're working with another DOM layer here. You know, there's passing of events and, and organizing of components and code and, and runtime logic, and it's just a whole other environment that you need to get familiar with. But I mean, this is the answer. Like, if this is this is how like the common person can build their own enterprise level pluggable which is now like I have this word in my head after our podcast portal. Like it makes sense. I, cause you know, all our loves, it's like, Oh, log into the municipality portal. That, that, that makes sense. That is what it is. Some big conglomerate. It's a funny thing. So quite often we get approached by some customers or potential customers and saying, okay, so we now made this comparison. What's all there. And Pyro was one of the things and we, think Pyrel is is the one and then they tell us what problem they want to solve and we say yeah yeah we also think Pyrel is the solution because quite often i mean it really fits they they tell us oh and then we got uh different functionality this is already an existing application and this but this we don't want for this kind of user group and we're saying okay yeah already makes sense and at some point in time they then even say oh and that it should all be shown on a dashboard and we're like yeah yeah okay don't don't say no more it's exactly was developed for this purpose uh and it's a uh, it's definitely not use case that fits for everyone but it's surprising how many application it really covers uh it covers certainly more than it's currently used for uh yeah but uh Let's let's see how much traction that can get. But anyway, it's it's really surprising uh, that when people tell you their use case and you say, okay, yeah, uh, it's sure a little bit of of your domain, but in the end of the day, it's really it just fits one to one what it was made for. Hey, you should feel really proud of that because you obviously really targeted a niche in need, and it, it's coming to fruition. I mean. Uh, Flo, we're coming up on time here, unfortunately. Um, I, I have more questions about where you want to take this framework and like the type of customers, but we are run out of time here. So I maybe we could at least point our listeners to A, the website, which is pyrel.io. Um, where can people find you on the socials, like a Twitter? Yes, I have a Twitter, uh, just with my name, Florian Rappel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Google it. Uh, uh, it should be there. Also, of course, I'm on GitHub. Same name. It's always the same handle. Uh, maybe I should get an, a simpler name, but. <laughs> uh, well, Rappel's, it's R A P P L, right? Yeah, that's okay. right. So, but you can always go with the rep.pl joke. And uh, so it's, uh, and you know, and, uh, Florian is, is also, yeah. I don't know, maybe German, German brand name. I don't know. So it's, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I will come up with a simpler name in the future. <laughs> no, no, come on. Your name's great. And then, and then if people want to see Pyrel in action, uh, there's YouTube videos that you're actually narrating. So you can hear more of Flo's voice, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go on YouTube and, uh, there's like a super Mario example on there. There's like a seven or eight minute intro. Um, any other resources that you'd want to point people at before we close out? Yeah, no, I think Parallel is the best because it aggregates also all other articles and uh, talks I, I've given over the years, right? So there's uh, in the reference section quite some links, um, but just go on Parallel.io, check out the docs, and there's a, a long tutorial with, as you mentioned, videos and everything and lots of references. So, And if, if nothing helps, go to our community, Gitter chat. Uh, that's uh, gitter.im slash... Pyro, I don't know. It's also mentioned on the on the website. 
um, gitter.im slash prior minus io slash community. But don't worry about that. Just you'll find the link also on our website. Well, thank you for your time, Flo. And hopefully some people will come and check out Pyro very soon. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to PodRocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.